Okay, folks, um, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Victor, our speaker for today, to you. Uh, 50 years plus, uh, Peter's served as an evangelist and a Bible teacher. And as I say, if you're listening to uh, the sermon yesterday and today, you'll see why he's renowned as a Bible teacher, mostly in East Anglia. Um, also, many of us here, uh, um, for 30 years, I used the booklet Believe and Be Baptized when I was in ministry that, that Victor wrote. So if ever you went through the Believe and Be Baptized booklet, here is the author of that booklet, Believe and Be Baptized. It's been used. And how many languages did you say it had been translated? 80 languages has been translated into. So, uh, and uh, Victor was saying yesterday he wrote that uh, in a kind of a gap in time in a mission you're at. Uh, young people had asked about being baptized, so he wrote it there and then on the spot. And without much change, it's been used all this time. So it's a wonderful sort of uh, legacy, it, it, just that that you've left Victor there. Uh, also, he was for a time uh, the chaplain at the Garden Tomb in Jerusalem. And anyone been to the Garden Tomb, Jerusalem? It's a wonderful place to be, a very peaceful place. And uh, how long were you there for? Oh, wow, yeah. In and out. In and out. <laughs> yes, they let you out now and then, did they? That's nice, yes. It's a beautiful place, and um, we had communion there when we were there, and it's a very special place to take communion. And um, also, he's the founder of Sizewell Hall uh, Christian Conference Center. Has anyone ever been there? Um, Ruth's been there. Yep, been there. And um, up by Sizewell, which is also known for another thing, because basically if, if we had a meeting in the evening, Victor could well kind of glow in the dark, actually, being living so close to Sizewell. And um, there's slightly less of you, isn't there, today, Victor? Because I think since the last time we were hoping you would come, you had a kidney removed. So we're so pleased you're with us today, and we pray that you're having a complete and full recovery from that operation. And... Um, Victor probably won't remember this, but we once met, you and I, over 30 years ago, a friend and I, John Marshall, who worked for Scripture Union in Hinckley. I was a pastor in a church in Hinckley. We were doing a mission up north, and we popped to see you, because I think John and Linda were going to take over, either from you or from someone, to, at the uh, Garden Tomb at some point. So we, we, we popped in to see, I know he was a good friend anyway, and so it was a very brief meeting, so if you forget me, I understand why. I was slim then. <laughs> Hold on a minute. I could see my ribs then, I can't see my feet now, but that's okay. So you might not remember, it was a very brief meeting, so it was nice to meet the man who wrote the book that I'd been using for all that time. So um, it's a very pleasure to hand over to you, Victor, and the Lord bless you as you share with us today. When I speak in a new place where I've never, ever been before, there's one thing I always look out for, first of all. Do you know what that is? Who can guess? The first thing I look out for is the clock, so that I don't go on too long. And I've been told roughly how long I should speak. And it reminds me of the story of a friend of mine who went to a very old, rustic-type Baptist church. And as he walked in, an old deacon said to him, would you like a cup of tea, my boy, at the end of the service? He said, I would very much. He said, when you see me put the kettle on the stove, and it was one of those churches which had a Coke stove in the middle. Do anybody remember those? And it went up through the ceiling. And if you sat near them, you got absolutely roasted. He said, you'll see me put the kettle on the stove. And he said, that will boil after 20 minutes, and it will whistle. And that's your time to stop. <laughs> And then with a twinkle in his eye, he said, you know, there are some people who come here to speak, and we only fill the kettle half full. <laughs> <laughs> you 
Anyway, it's a privilege to be with you today, and uh, I'm basically going to talk to you about five accidents that I've had, and the blessing that's come out of each one. And so the overall title really is Buffetings and Blessings. I was brought up in a family of seven boys. I'm number two in the pecking order, and Peter is number six. And uh, my father came from Scotland. He brought his dairy herd down on the train as a young lad and bought a farm in Suffolk. And uh, we often say that father brought us up on porridge and proverbs. He was always quoting the book of Proverbs. And if we got agitated and angry about something when we were all sitting round the table, he would quote a proverb and he would say, he who is slow to anger is of great understanding, which would needle us a little bit more. <laughs> and I remember somebody coming to buy a cattle, some cattle on the farm and uh, the guy who was encouraging my father to do a sort of under-the-table under deal so that he wouldn't have to pay so much tax. And my father looked at him and he said, a good name is better to be chosen than great riches. And he would quote so many problems, and I think Peter would say the same as me. Those are still with us today. So I had a, a wonderful beginning to my life, a strong Christian family. But when I got into my teenage years, I kind of inwardly rebelled for two reasons. One, I was very good at sport, and uh, I loved sport, and the people in the church I sort of grew up with didn't feel sport and being a Christian was compatible and so that left me feeling uncomfortable until the head boy in our school became a Christian and he was uh, a great character he was a captain of the football team he was a captain of the cricket team and he really won my respect the second thing that kept me from committing my life to God was the fact that I was pressurized by people when I was younger to become a Christian you know people would try and talk me into it and almost push me into it. And the more they did that, the more inwardly I rebelled, almost to say, you are not going to make me a Christian. And then one day I had an accident. I was playing cricket for the school and I was walking out to the field and somebody just hit a ball and it went right into the middle of my back. And at that time I was down to represent Suffolk in the All England finals. And the one thing I'd lived for and trained for was taken away from me and I was devastated because I was on my back for a number of weeks recovering but while I was there I had some deep thinking to do and the first time I went back to church I remember sitting behind a big man bricky day and I hoped he the speaker wouldn't see me because I often felt the speaker had been tipped off saying that that young man is the black sheep of the family make sure you preach at him anyway that evening <laughs> I just simply surrendered my life to God because he demolished all the walls of rebellion and pride that I erected. And I simply said, God, I'm not very happy with the kind of person I'm becoming. I give my life to you. And a deep sense of peace settled in my heart. And I knew that I was on a journey with God. And I knew he'd become my father and that Jesus had become my savior and that the Holy Spirit now was going to be my helper. And I was coming up to 17 years of age. So as a result of that first accident, I became a committed Christian. But one of the things I struggled with was sharing my faith. At that stage in my life, I was quite shy and reserved and inhibited. 
and didn't have the confidence, perhaps, that I felt I ought to have to be able to talk about my faith. And I would listen to preachers who would say, you've got to witness, you've got to share your faith in Jesus. But I couldn't seem to do it. I really struggled with it. Then I was called up to do my national service. Anybody here do national service? Anybody go in for two years to do national service? Just one friend over here. Well, he's probably a similar age to me. I'm now in my 86th year, and I did two years national service. And I was in the army with a chap called Martin Bell. Do you remember him, the white-coated MP and the newsreader and so on? And we went into the army together. And the leaders in my church got round to me and say, they said, young man, if you don't witness when you go in and make it clear you're a Christian, your faith will probably just disappear like water through the sand. So when I got to the barracks, there were 32 people in the room, a big room, and we were all pretty close together. And I found a bed in the corner where I hoped I wouldn't be noticed too much. But then when everybody was laughing and talking and a lot of crude jokes going on, I put my Bible out, a very small one, by my locker, and then I knelt and prayed. And I expected people to laugh and to mock and that boots might get thrown in my direction or pillows. But I wasn't prepared for the response because the whole place went quiet. And they showed respect for that little religious bloke in the corner saying his prayers. So I made my mark, but I never took any kind of ridicule for being a Christian because I was in the rugby team and the gymnastic team and the shooting team and that sort of thing. So it does give you a little bit of kudos with other men. But all the time, somehow within me, I was wanting to be able to share my faith and didn't seem to be able to do it. Well, I had two years in Cyprus as part of my national service and we were up in the hills often looking for terrorists on their terrorist trails and roughing it, and it was a tough time. I felt a failure, though, as the time came to an end. And I remember sharing with a missionary who was working amongst the troops. There were 30,000 military personnel on the island of Cyprus that time, separating the Greeks and the Turks, who were having a war about who the island belonged to. And I shared with a missionary, and I said to him, I feel I've been a bit of a failure. I've lived on this camp under the platitude, it's my life that counts. People can see I'm a Christian by the way I live. And I did live a different lifestyle to some of the other men. But inwardly, I have to admit, it was cowardice that kept me from sharing my faith. But he put my, his hand on my shoulder and he said, young man, if you're willing, God will restore the years the locusts have eaten. Well, I was willing, but I came back to England and I didn't find it very interesting very easy sharing my faith with people on the farm. Then my second accent, because when I came back to the farm, I was fattening lots of pigs for Sainsbury's. I helped to give them a good start. And uh, one day I was carrying a bag of meal on my shoulders and I did the splits on some greasy concrete. So I ended up in hospital with a massive hernia. And I thought, this is the place where I'll make it clear that I'm a Christian. And again, I put a Bible out and the man in the bed next to me was a farmer. Fine, we got on famously. We talked farming from morn till night. We talked about everything and anything. And I kept hoping he would ask me questions, but he never did. And I left hospital again feeling defeated. I thought, this is a place where I can talk to somebody about Jesus. 
Well, I left hospital, went home, and after about a week, I was back in Ipswich buying some cattle for the farm. And I went to the restaurant where I normally went afterwards, and I saw the wife of the man I'd been in bed with next to. And <laughs> put that right. <laughs> and I went over to her and I said, how's your husband? And her eyes filled with tears and she said, he took a turn for the worst after you left. And all I could do was say, I'm really sorry. And I went back to my farm vehicle and I sat in my vehicle and I broke and I said, God, what is wrong with me? Here I am, a Christian. I can talk about cricket and football. I can talk about farming and the weather and 101 other things. But why can't I just talk naturally about Jesus? And God showed me very clearly in those moments that I was more concerned about myself than I was the other person. More concerned about my reputation, my image, what people thought of me, than what I should be thinking of the needs of the other person. And so I just sat in my vehicle and said, Lord God, help me to find a way. And about two weeks later, I was going down to South End where my fiancé was teaching. And uh, as young men do, I left about half past 12 at night to drive the two-hour journey home. And as I drove home, I saw somebody hitchhiking. And it was almost as though God said, pick him up. It'll be dark. Talk to him. He won't see how embarrassed you get. And I picked him up, and I'd no sooner picked him up than I wished I hadn't because he was smelly. And I thought, I've picked up a real kind of uh, waif and stray here. But then he started to talk with a cultured accent. And I thought, this is interesting. And he began to open his heart and say, I lost my wife in a car crash. And I just couldn't go back to the home, seeing the place that she'd created and made home for us both. So he said, I just packed a few bits and I left home. And I'd just been wandering. And I've been sleeping in barns wherever I could. And that was why he was a bit smelly. And you know, I made a trembling opening remark and I said to him, I believe God could heal the wound that's in your heart. And he turned to me and he said, well, how would he do it? And that night, with growing confidence and increasing joy, I shared with him what I knew about Jesus and how he could find strength and peace through him and hope for the future. And we drove on talking for another hour or so and then he said, you know, I would like to be a Christian. And so he pulled into a lay-by, and he committed his life to God. Do you know, I drove home on air. I felt I'd broken the sound barrier. I talked to one other person about Jesus. And I was so excited. And it must have been sort of half past two in the morning before I got home. And it was my turn to milk the cows that morning. So I was up again about six. But I was singing. I was just so delighted. And after that, I would pick up hitchhikers. I had... Somebody in my car, they wanted a lift, and I had somebody to witness to, and I could tell you so many stories of people I had the privilege of sharing my faith with. So as a result of that accident, the blessing came, the freedom to talk about Jesus. And the man who talked, who, who brought the uh, church army into place, he wrote a book towards the conversion of England, and he said in that book, we cannot over-exaggerate the importance of broken, breaking down this tradition, traditional British reserve which produces a church of silent saints. And he said, I'm trying to open the mouths of the people in the pews to help them to talk about Jesus. So that accident helped me to find freedom uh, and to share my faith with other people. 
So when things go wrong, we tend to become very remote, but we always need to be looking for God to be working and seeing how he can use things that go wrong to change the way that we live. Well, I came back from Cyprus. I worked on the farm for a bit. Then I got off the combine one day, and it was almost as if God said to me, you need to go to Bible college and prepare yourself for preaching and teaching. And so I did two years at Bible college. I came back to Suffolk and did missions all over Suffolk with a marquee that held 500 people. And in those days, they came in their crowds. We'd have 500 kids a night, 300 teenagers midweek. And we saw a lot of people become Christians. And as a result of that, we started to run house parties in different places, in public schools. And we also, I ran a Bible school through the autumn to help the young Christians to become stronger in their faith. And then we set up a conference center, a place called Sizal Hall. Ours is the real power station, by the way, not the place down the beach. It's about two miles down the beach where we see people's lives changed and marriages healed and so on. And one night we had a Thanksgiving service that over 30,000 people had already stayed at the center and that nobody got into any difficulties in the mad games we played in the woods and also in the sea because it's in a very idyllic situation right by the coast, surrounded by trees. It's really beautiful. The next day I go swimming with my boys and uh, some friends and uh, my middle son, Michael, he said, I'll race you in. So we all ran down to the sea and we dived into the water and went swimming. And then immediately I noticed, as we were swimming out to a sandbank, I noticed that my oldest son, Graham, had a very bad asthma attack and he was really struggling. So I helped him to get in, but at the same time, my younger brother, Ian, disappeared in the water. He just simply disappeared. He was very fit playing squash and he had a big farm near Market Harbour. And I went out to try and rescue him. But because the water there is so murky, you can only see through about 18 inches of the water. I just didn't find him. So I sounded the alarm and a policeman came and thought he could see him drifting out to sea. And then he suddenly was washed up on the beach. And I ran over and did mouth to mouth and the police did heart massage. And then a helicopter arrived with doctors, but he'd been in the water too long. He was gone. And even talking about it here quite a number of years later, it still breaks my heart to think about it. But the last I saw of him was being put in a helicopter going heavenwards. And it seemed to be a symbol, really. He was so committed to Jesus, and he was helping to pioneer a new work on an estate where there's a beautiful uh, church built today, which is flourishing. He was also chairman of the Gideons in rugby. And I said, Lord, why? And I drove home feeling absolutely numb. And because I'd had quite a high profile in the district, when I got home, there was a newspaper reporter on my doorstep. And you won't believe this, but the first thing she said to me was, after all you've done for God, don't you feel he's kicked you in the teeth? Surely you'll give up your work now. And I looked at her and I said, I don't know why this has happened, but I believe God does. And I believe there will be a purpose as a result. It was a painful experience, but you know, it was recorded in the press and uh, lots of people contacted me, a farmer and a businessman and a number of others. But within 12 days of my brother drowning, a girl of 12 years of age drowned in our village. 
And I thought, I've got to go and see the parents. Because as a result of that experience, God created deep reservoirs of compassion and empathy for other people, which were not there before. Because I used to try and get alongside people who'd been into tragedies or had terrible accidents, were in hospital. And I always felt uncomfortable. I didn't feel at ease. But after that accident, I felt able to share out of the depths of my own experience with others. But during all of this, I had lots of cards, as you can imagine, and emails coming from different people. But there was one card from somebody I'd worked with a little bit called Delia Smith. Do you remember her, the TV cook? And she wrote me a card and expressed her sympathy. And then she said, Victor, when you go through a terrible time like this, the best prayer book you can take is the book of Psalms. So I started to read through the book of Psalms. And I came to Psalm 13 where he keeps asking God questions. Why? Why? And then he says, why do I have all this sorrow in my heart and all these questions in my mind causing my enemy to rejoice over me? And often when you go through a tragedy, the first thing you do is start asking why, why? And you don't naturally immediately get answers. And because you keep asking why, you then get very sorrowful in your heart. And then the third thing follows, you feel the enemy is rejoicing over you and almost pushing your face into the dust. But I carried on reading to the end of the psalm where it talks about God's faithfulness and the fact that uh, he goes on to say, I will trust in your unfailing love. And I thought, I've experienced so much of God's love, I'm not going to allow this to deflect me. And then he says, I will rejoice in your salvation. So I said, God, I'm not going to give in to despair. I'm going to rejoice in your salvation. And then he says, I will sing because you have been good to me. And I'd had a whole history of God's faithfulness and goodness. And I said, Lord, I'm not going to let this defeat me. The enemy is not going to triumph over me. So I said to my wife, Meg, I've got to go back to the beach. And I went back to the beach and I knelt in the place where I tried to resuscitate my brother and uh, said through my tears, Lord God, I don't understand why this has been allowed to happen, but I believe you do and that you have a purpose in it. And I had to learn something very important at that stage, and I often pass this on to other people, that we all need when we go through difficult times to turn our grief into gratitude. So I used to walk through the fields near where I lived and uh, I would grieve as I walked and then I would stop and I would start praising God for the life we'd had together, the things we'd done together, the many rich memories we had, the three wonderful boys that God had given to us. And as I started praising God, it would always ease the grief. So I always say to people, turn your grief into gratitude. So to the fourth accident, how's the time? I've got a few minutes left. The fourth accident, I was sitting at home one night about 11 o'clock when the phone rang and uh, it was police headquarters in Ipswich. And they said, are you the owner of car so-and-so? And I said, yes, that's my car. And my immediate thought was somebody had stolen it because my wife had driven in it to go to Grantham. And they said, well, the occupant has been involved in a really bad accident. So I said to the police, where is she? And uh, they wouldn't tell me. They said, you'll need to wait and we'll give you further instructions. And I waited for half an hour and they said, you need to get to Berry Hospital quickly. 
And when I got there, I met a consultant who I knew who was a Christian. And he said, your wife's in very bad shape. And what had happened, she was driving back late at night and a lorry, an articulated lorry, had broken down on the road and I think the half shaft had gone and they couldn't get it off the road and it was dark and I think she probably didn't realize it was stationary or she fell asleep but she went into the back of the truck at high speed and if you'd seen the car as a result of that accident, you wouldn't believe that anybody would emerge as a result from it. She had a piece of metal that went through the top of her head, so she had 19 stitches in her head, lots of glass embedded in her head, some that they took out, some that were there right until the time that she died. Well, I went into the hospital and I just found a quiet room where I could kneel and pray. And the consultant said, you know, she's in a coma now, she'll be in a coma for quite a few days. So I went backwards and forwards to the hospital and the nurse used to say, you need to be here when she surfaces, she needs to see a familiar face. And uh, I was there one day when she woke up and my three boys were there as well and she opened her eyes and said, why am I here? And I tried my best to explain while she was there. And prior to this, the nurse had said, you know, when people have the kind of head injury that she's had, when they wake up, they will shout, they'll scream, they'll swear. And I thought, I've never heard my wife swear. <laughs> but she said, they all do that. Anyway, I, I looked at her and I said, I'm going to read to you from the Bible. And I read another psalm to her. And I prayed with her. And to my surprise, and to the nurse's surprise, she burst out into praise as if she'd been in God's presence for seven, eight days. And the nurse was so taken aback that she later committed her life to God. So that was another blessing that came out, yet another buffeting. But you learn painful experiences too as a result of that because I had to care for her for three months, initially pushing her round in a chair. And um, all this arm was shattered and she was a very gifted pianist so I thought she's never going to play again and uh, the consultant said to me she'll never use that arm again our elders met in the church and prayed for her and the next time I visited her she felt the pin when it was put into her finger and the consultant looked at me and said this is remarkable and I said she's a much prayed for woman the conversation stopped there because I later discovered that he had a son who was hit by a rotor blade from a helicopter and he was at home as a cabbage, really. And so I had to learn to care for my wife. I had to learn to run the home and to do the cooking and everything else. But I was carried through it all by the prayers of other people. And it's wonderful to be part of a Christian community when you go through tough times and to know they're going to pray for you. And even sometimes you hardly know how to pray for yourself. You'll be carried by the prayers of other people. It also helped me to understand how important it is to pray for the carer. We often pray for the pe person who's sick and going through a tough time. But what about the husband or wife who's caring for them? It's important to pray for them as well. And so Meg came through that. So there was one blessing out of that. But I did ask the police where her personal belongings were because her handbag I still hadn't got. I said, I'd like to go and see the car to see if it's in there. And they said, we'd rather you didn't. It'll give you such a shock. But I said, it's all right. I can cope with that. And so I went to the car. And I found in the car 
her belongings. But the thing that staggered me was on the back seat was a book that she had been reading, not while she was driving, but a book that she'd been reading. And the book simply had the title, Can You Believe It? God Can Be Trusted. So in the middle of all that carnage, it was the encouragement to trust God even when things go badly wrong. So I cared again for her for several months. And again, it was a tough time. And uh, then later, she had breast cancer. And uh, she had all the necessary treatment for that. And she was absolutely fine after that for a while. And then a few years later, we discovered that she had cancer in five different parts of her body and mostly in her bones. And that was so painful. There were times when I could only just hold her and cry with her and pray with her. Again, our elders prayed. And she came right through that and had several years with me where she was fit and well again, which was absolutely remarkable. And then we were working in Jerusalem. I was chairman of the board of the garden tomb at that time. And uh, I was down to speak at the Good Friday service. And she read the lesson beautifully. And people came out of the crowd that had gathered to thank her for her reading because she had a special way of reading the Bible that brought it to life. And she actually, after her first accident, read every word from Genesis to Revelation, the torch trust for the bind, and it was used by them for a number of years. But we left Jerusalem under remarkable circumstances because we went by El Al, the Israeli airline, and she became very unwell and I thought, how am I going to get her home? So I phoned for a doctor. And the doctor who came had done an exchange visit in our hometown for four years. And he turned out to be a Christian, which was wonderful. But he said, your wife is so sick. Her, her liver is collapsing. I'll have to put her in a Jewish or an Arab hospital. And I said, I don't want you to do that. She won't understand the Hebrew or the Arabic that's being spoken and I said, well, can you do something? He said, well, you're giving me one of the biggest challenges of my medical career. But he injected her, and she uh, received a lot of uh, vitamin C, I think it was. Then I phoned up El Al to get her home. And they said, we have no seats for six days because Passover and Easter had converged, and it was such a busy time. So I sent up a Nehemiah-type prayer and said, God, we need your help. And so I phoned up British Airways, and they said, we've had two cancellations. If you get here early in the morning, you can take that flight home. Well, we got the flight. They didn't ask why I wanted to get my wife home. Otherwise, I don't think they would have let her on the plane. But we got home and uh, ended in the hospital in Bury, where they confirmed she had very little time left. So she came back home and died really quite quickly afterwards, very peacefully in our own home. But prior to that, she had planned her whole funeral service, everything that she wanted. She even planned what she wanted to have on her gravestone. And it was very unusual. It simply said on her gravestone, I have seen the Lord. The words that Mary Magdalene used when she burst in on the disciples and said, I've seen the Lord. Well, that's the reality for a Christian who dies with faith in God. You fall asleep and you wake up and you see the Lord Jesus, your Savior. So that's just a little bit of history to illustrate that in life you can take knocks, but God can also bring good things out of it. 
In every one of those cases, God brought good things out of all those experiences. I came across some words that run like this. No chance has brought this ill to me. Tis God's own hand, so let it be. He sees what I cannot see. There is a need be for each pain, and he will one day make it plain that earthly loss is heavenly gain. Just like a piece of tapestry, viewed from the back appears to be nothing but threads tangled hopelessly. But in the front, a picture fair rewards the worker for his care, proving his skill and patience rare. You are the workman. I am the frame. Lord, for the glory of your name, perfect your image on the same. And in some way, God is working in our lives for good. One final thing I would say to you is in these words, get your anchor down before the storms begin. Because we'll all run into different types of storm. But get your anchor down before the storms begin. And by that I mean put your faith in Jesus. Trust in God. Put your life in his hands. And when the boat is rocked, when the storms come, he'll be there with you in the boat and he'll bring you through. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Can I just say on behalf of all of us, uh, thank you, Victor. Um, so I sat there, I think you could hear a pin drop. Um, it was uh, just absolutely fascinating to hear about your life story and how God was there in so many instances. Uh, and as you spoke at the last time about kind of your anchor, um, I was going to say right at the end, but I'm going to say now, we're, we're looking in the new year to do what's called an Alpha course, uh, which is for those who don't know Jesus as yet or kind of just want to revisit the whole relationship with him. And uh, we felt that it would be good for kind of the group from um, Food for Thought, and then you've got, got what we called, to, to organize that. So with no plans yet, but just to put out there, if, if there's anybody who might be interested in it, I think, trying to look at George, it's about a 10, about a 10 week course where, where people get together in a very informal way, have something to eat like this, uh, and just talk through the Christian faith. But I think... If, if you are, have a, heard what Victor said and think, well, I'm not quite sure I've got that anchor, it'll be good. So we'll be revisiting and encouraging people in the new year to do that. We are now going to do pudding, and we're going to put the kettle on as well. So, and do discuss uh, what, what Victor's talked about. Thank you. <laughs>